This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. This is The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. And we are celebrating something we think is very special. What is that? Our 300th episode. 300 episodes of The Takeout. Six years and running. Kind of an unfathomable number for us who created this show and still sustain it on a volunteer basis. Everyone attached to the show. Jamie Benson's right over there. Sarah Cook's there. Arden Fari's there. Eric Susanen. Ellie Watson and others do this on a volunteer basis. And you know from listening and watching this show that there is one permanent truth I always let you know. I will never forget January 6, 2021. The show will never forget that day because our country needs to look at that day again and again and again to remind ourselves how it started, what its origins were, what it means, and how we fix the underlying causes that led to that atrocity in American history, January 6th, 2021. So that's why for this 300th episode that we are celebrating, I could not be happier to have at the table here at the Dubliner, our host restaurant, Michael Fanone. He worked with the Metropolitan Police Department on that day. He self-deployed on that day. He held the line on that day. And he has written a new book called Hold the Line published by Simon & Schuster, which I am obligated to mention, is a division of Paramount Global. Michael Fanone, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me, and congratulations on uh, 300 episodes. I'm happy you're here for a couple of reasons. We don't know each other. We're going to get to know each other in this conversation. I hope we stay in touch with one another. Lots of other reporters have gotten to know you. 
But I'd like to ask you a real simple question, which is not a simple answer. How are you doing? Uh, I mean, I guess if you're asking me in regards to um, my experience on January 6th, I've been fortunate. Uh, I've made a full recovery from uh, the physical injuries that I experienced that day. Can you remind my audience what those were? Sure. Um, I was uh, diagnosed with a uh, traumatic brain injury. Uh, I also suffered a heart attack. Uh, as well as uh, some bumps and bruises and uh, a few uh, burns uh, as well. Two burns on your neck, correct? Yeah, I was struck with uh, a taser uh, on my neck uh, several times, which uh, resulted in the burns, and also uh, I believe they feel attributed to, um, to the heart attack. You write in the book, uh, trauma is trauma, and it lasts a long time, and it takes lots of different forms. How are you coping with that? I think I've come to terms with um, my experience that day, uh, and I guess, I mean, there's new challenges that pop up all the time, um, and, and that comes from continuing to speak out. Mm-hmm. But I mean, all in all, I'm. Uh, I wouldn't have done it any other way, nor would I uh, choose to do it differently. For the audience, explain that day and how it played out for you, and what you so dramatically represent in the book. Yeah. So, um, for those of you that don't know, I began my career uh, shortly after 9/11 with the United States Capitol Police. Um, it's there that I learned that I love the profession of law enforcement, but uh, I knew that U.S. Capitol Police was not the agency for me. So after about a year, I lateraled to the Metropolitan Police Department, which is the traditional law enforcement agency here in Washington, D.C. Essentially, if you dial 911, we're the ones that respond. I spent almost two decades with the Metropolitan Police Department, uh, and the majority of that time I spent in small specialized units focused on narcotics trafficking, um, illegal firearms recovery, and also um, the apprehension of violent criminals. I was assigned to one of those uh, units on January 6th, and that morning I fully intended on um, participating in an investigation that our office was working on collectively. My plan for that day was to do a controlled heroin buy from a location that uh, had been uh, problematic uh, within our district. Um, That morning, I remember receiving phone calls, mostly from my partner, Jimmy Albright, uh, in which he was telling me about um, things that he was hearing from officers that were already at work. Uh, This was later on in the morning. there were officers from our department that had made arrests for individuals uh, who were in possession of firearms at the Stop the Steal rally. Uh, those individuals that you know we learned from the select committee uh, were located just outside of the um, security perimeter, mm-hmm. but nevertheless were there. They were armed, uh, and several were arrested, and firearms were recovered. Um, Later on, I learned that a large group 
um, of those individuals, mostly the individuals who had remained outside of the security perimeter, were uh, headed towards the Capitol complex. Mm-hmm. Um, so the I'm gathering, Michael Fanone, the tenor of these texts or calls was, this looks odd, and it's looking either odder or more dangerous as it is developing. Yeah, I mean, listen, um, everyone in the department was aware of the Stop the Steal rally and the potential for violence. Um, you know, the rhetoric that had surrounded that event and that had been used by the former president and many of his allies in the weeks leading up to the event um, was, I think, seen as um, instigating uh Certainly adding an air of volatility to that day, without a question. Yeah. And so our department had taken some pretty significant steps um, in the weeks prior to January 6th in that they had uh, restricted leave for that week. They had canceled our days off. Uh, Our deployment shifts were changed to 12-hour shifts. We had activated a number of our civil disturbance units uh, and... We'd also taken an unprecedented step of uh, canceling leave that had already been approved. So for all intents and purposes, it was a real all-hands-on-deck week. Not just the day, but the week. And it's a good thing that we did. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember the phone call I got from Jimmy uh, shortly after 1 p.m. in which he said... The uh, turn on your radio, the uh, police perimeter outside the Capitol had been breached and that officers were being attacked. Um, After that, you know, listening to the distress calls come out from officers uh, all over the Capitol complex uh, and then eventually the agency distress call coming from U.S. Capitol Police, I knew that uh, I was not doing a heroin buy that day. Um, and that's when I made the decision that I was going to respond to the Capitol. No one ordered you? No. But, I, I mean, it should be noted that, uh, you know, my experience that day is representational of hundreds of MPD officers who self-deployed to the Capitol. I mean, we heard the distress calls um, coming out from officers and from uh, our colleagues uh, that had been sent to the Capitol. And, um, and you heard, as you write in the book... Officers were in danger or officers were under threat or that lines had been flanked and that this was getting out of control. I mean, I think after the first perimeter was breached, uh, it was out of control. Um, You know, the initial MPD contingents, the CDU platoons that responded to the Capitol, the officers that self-deployed quickly realized that they were dramatically outnumbered. Uh, and that these people were hell-bent on getting into the Capitol. That is the voice of Michael Fanon. We need to take our first break. Segment two, we will pick up on the story right there. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout, episode 300. It's a big show. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. 
like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cashback events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout, segment two. Many thanks to the Dubliner. Our number one restaurant in terms of doing The Takeout. Maywa was the ancestral home of the show for those of us who've been with us from the beginning. Long outstripped by the Dubliner, and we thank the Dubliner for its hospitality always. Michael Fanone is our guest for what we're celebrating as episode 300. Pick up the story where you left it off, Michael. Yeah, so um, you get there. Well, <clears throat> we hear that the uh, perimeter had been breached. Um, at one point, the uh, Metropolitan Police did something that it had never done in the history of the department, which is tactically retreat from a held police position. Um, about that time, I was arriving at the 1st District, um, my district station, and I went into uh, my partner's office, and he was sitting at his desk, and he looked up at me and said, uh, what are we going to do? I told him we were going to go. Uh, I put on a uniform the first time in probably about a decade, maybe a decade and a half, other than uh, picture day, that I wore one. And uh, Doesn't Jimmy, advice you were playing clothes. Correct. Yeah. So, so you get on the uniform? Get the uniform on, and uh, Jimmy and I found a car and drove our drove to the Capitol. Uh, once we got there, I remember um, you know, we parked the vehicle just south of the Long Wharf House Office building, and we made our way up South Capitol Street. And it was eerily quiet. Uh, this is an area that's typically busy with pedestrian traffic. Mm-hmm. There was no one there. Um, once we got to Independence Avenue, that's when we realized that, uh, you know, what, what was happening. Um, the street was filled with police vehicles, and we could see where uh, police lines were, you know, barricades had been toppled, and there were hundreds of demonstrators inside, the, um, inside those police lines. And they were, you know, yelling and screaming and chanting, and um, some of them were dressed in, you know, paramilitary-style clothing and equipment. They were all holding uh, politically, uh, you know, political signs, Mm -hmm. uh, MAGA flags, Trump 2020, things like that. Um, And then 
we made our way to the southern entrance to the Capitol. Uh, it was at that point I remember Jimmy pointing out to me on that the ramp that leads up to the entrance. It was uh, just covered in uh, blood splatter. And once we entered the building, we walked through the Hall of Columns and made our way to uh, the crypt, which is the circular centermost area just beneath uh, Statuary Hall in the Rotunda. When we were there, that's when I remember hearing a distress call or a 1033 coming out from the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. Um, And Jimmy and I responded immediately to that area to assist. Uh, We walked down a set of stairs, which leads out to that tunnel. The tunnel itself is um, uh, pretty symbolic in nature. It's, uh, It's the hall that or the tunnel that the president-elect walks out of um, onto the inaugural stage to take the oath of office. It's about 200, 250 feet long, about as wide as maybe four or five adults standing shoulder to shoulder. Uh, And I remember coming down the stairs, the first person I saw was uh, Sergeant Bill Bogner, who I had known throughout my career. This was an administrative guy. Uh, he had worked as a admin sergeant at the 1st District for a number of years and, and was currently assigned to uh, our academy. This guy was a paper pusher, um, but he suited up and also self-deployed to the Capitol that day. Uh, Bill couldn't see anything. He had been sprayed in the face with, um, with bear spray. Uh, and I remember going up to him and, and telling him, hey, you know, it's Mike. Uh, it's it's Fanone, and uh, he stretched out his hand, I, I think thinking that we were part of some cavalry um, that was there to relieve them, but it was just the two of us. Right. We had this kind of surreal moment, uh, and then we started heading into uh, into the tunnel. And, and the tunnel leads out, as you said, and there was a crowd there trying to get in. And these officers in front of you are besieged. They're reeling in one level or another, physically or otherwise, from things sprayed in their eyes or things that they're being bludgeoned with. Yeah, so to, to paint the scene, um, we walk through this set of double doors that leads out into the tunnel. And immediately I was overtaken by um, the CS gas and the chemical irritants that were still lingering in the air. Uh, I didn't bring a gas mask. And uh, quite a few officers actually did not have gas masks that were there in the tunnel. And that is intense and and overwhelming. It's difficult to breathe. It's difficult to see. Disorienting. Yeah. Very much so. Um, So I remember doing a uh, about face, walking back out through the double doors and kind of collecting myself and thinking about all the decisions that I had made in my life that led me to... uh, (laughs) This horrible decision to come to the Capitol that day. And um, then I remember seeing Ramey Kyle. And uh, Commander Ramey Kyle was the, the highest-ranking officer that, um, that was there at that time. Uh, he was in charge of our Investigative Services Bureau. And he had self-deployed to the Capitol. Um, watching him uh, command this 40 or 50 officers that was there that were there defending the tunnel was the most inspirational 
scene that I've ever experienced in my life. And uh, I think for me, it was the moment that I made the decision that this is where I was going to uh, to stay and, and to fight. And so uh, my partner and I went back out, followed Ray Kyle, and um, it was there that uh, we fought alongside of about 40 other MPD officers and a, a, around a half dozen U.S. Capitol Police officers that were defending that tunnel. And what we were up against <clears throat> was pretty much every single individual that was out on the West Terrace, which you couldn't see from where we were at, was about fifteen to 20,000 people. Uh, and this area had, because it was the only open entrance at that time into the Capitol, had become this funnel of violence. The, these individuals, uh, rioters, they were using um, metal objects, aluminum baseball bats. Um, they were using scaffolding and police barricades as uh, battering rams. Shields as battering rams. Shields, commercial-grade fireworks, um, chemical irritants, everything from pepper spray to CS gas to bear spray. Um and I, I mean, it was intense. You could not slide a credit card between two individuals that were in that uh, in that hallway. And these officers that were there had been there for well over ninety minutes, fighting nonstop. Uh, I remember, you know, making my way through this group of officers and just seeing them fatigued, um, bleeding. I think it, under any normal circumstance, uh, any one of those guys would have been, you know, on their way to a hospital in an ambulance, but that wasn't an option. We were fighting for our lives. Because there were no reserves. There, there was just that line. There was just that number and small dozens of officers plugging that hole, holding that line. Exactly. That's the voice of Michael Fanone. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, when we come back for segment three... You're going to hear, in Michael Fanone's own words, what happened next. It's in his book, Hold the Line. It's vividly described. It's something you need to hear. You're going to want to hear. I'm Major Garrett, segment three of The Takeout from the Doubler, coming up in just a minute. Hi, Major. This is Tony Fauci here at the NIH. I want to take this opportunity to give you a hearty congratulations on 300 episodes of The Takeout. It's been a privilege and a pleasure for me to be part of that over the years, and I wish you many, many more. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, 
What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Hi, Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. So, Michael Fanone, you're self-deployed. You've described to the audience that moment as you got closer to the front. You saw the light of day, but were plunged into darkness. Yeah, so uh, I made my way to the front, and um, the fighting there was was brutal. You describe it in the book as medieval. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was, uh, you know, individuals in, like I said before, incredibly close proximity uh, using, you know, fists, objects, and, and the weight of... Um, you know, our fellow officers, or, or in the case of the uh, riders, their fellow riders, to try to um, overcome the opposition. And <clears throat> at one point, uh, we started to gain significant ground, and we were able to repel those individuals out of the tunnel. Um, and it was at that point that one of them. Uh, an individual named Albuquerque Head, uh, who actually is uh, up for sentencing tomorrow, uh, pulled me off the line and um, dragged me out into the crowd. Um, and one thing I should know, we're recording this on October 26th, so when you hear Michael Fanone refer to tomorrow, that would be October 27th. And also worth noting, before you left First District Headquarters, you put on a body cam. That's correct. You had body cam on, and all of this that you are hearing him describe in vivid step-by-step detail is verified by that body cam video. Correct. So you're pulled outside, and then what happens? I remember hearing uh, Albuquerque Head yell out, I got one. I got one. I got one. And um, at that point, I I was um, being beaten from every, uh, every direction. I was beaten with fists, metal objects, and um, pulled further and further out into the crowd. You write in the book that you at one point felt like you might be genuinely torn limb from limb. Yeah, you I, felt I was, that kind of pressure in pulling in every direction. Uh, I mean, there were individuals that were restraining me, grabbing my arms, pulling them in different directions. Um, I, I was... Uh, terrified that um, somebody would get a hold of my gun. Yeah, I was doing everything that I could to retain my, my firearm. I heard people chanting to uh, get his gun, kill him with his gun. And at that point, I remember being struck uh, multiple times with a taser uh, at the back, back of my neck. Um, that individual was identified. His name was Daniel Rodriguez. He's been charged. And I, I remember the excruciating pain uh, as well as, you know, the fear that I would no longer be able to retain my weapon. Um, obviously, you know, the purpose of using a taser is to incapacitate someone uh, and, you know, having it used multiple times um i i was i was losing control did you have a helmet on 
I did. Okay. So that helped a little bit. I'm pretty sure it saved my life. Yeah. Um, and it was at that point when I was um, most in fear of, I think, of losing control that uh, I was frantically searching for, um, for ways to survive. I, at one point, I remember thinking that um, yeah, I could use deadly force. There were individuals that clearly um, met that threshold that were trying to kill me. Uh, that being said, I quickly came to the conclusion that you know, even if I was able to draw my gun, most likely would have been stripped away from me before I even had an opportunity to, to use it. And uh, if I did use it, you know, there were dozens, uh, hundreds of people in, in close proximity to me. Um, eventually they would, uh, you know, use it against me or, or use similar force against me. So I went for uh, option B, which was you know, to try to um, reason with them. Yeah, I remember screaming out that I have kids. I thought maybe I could appeal to somebody's humanity. That's what you screamed, I have kids. Yeah, I have kids. And, um, and it worked. There were some individuals in the crowd that uh, assisted me uh, and provided enough time for uh, for other officers you, you, to, to you, get to me. You write in the book that some actually said to stop or to end the beating of you and then physically helped you get back toward a place of safety. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, you know, it wasn't like some moment where I yelled that out and everybody just stopped what they were doing. <laughs> right. But there were some people that... Uh, that did intervene on my behalf. Um, and, and heard and that were, plea for humanity. Yes. We're literally fighting with, um, with other rioters to, uh, to protect me. Mm -hmm. You write in the book about the anger you saw in their eyes, this ferocity. I'm asked all the time, where does that come from? How did we get to this place in our country where... Americans could feel that level of anger and act on it as violently, as viciously against someone in law enforcement. I don't have an explanation, and I'm not asking you to give one, but I'm wondering if you have any commentary on that. You saw those eyes. I've not seen those eyes. I've only read about them. I mean, I, I think that um, there's a lot of contributing factors that I, that I experienced, you know, whether it was... Um, violent rhetoric coming from politicians and, and political leaders combined with um, lies, uh, deception. Uh, I think the media played a part. Uh, I think that the way we consume our media is also problematic. Um, but I think ultimately it just comes down to, you know, Americans have become indifferent to the idea that you know this is a diverse country and that you know people who have different ideologies and um, political beliefs views on everything from you know everything you could imagine uh, can peacefully coexist and that that's actually what makes this country great um, I don't know how to get back to that but uh, I, I think that ultimately it's, it's indifference that is going to be the downfall of, uh, of America. 
and you're living proof that this can manifest itself in very dangerous, very close to deadly ways. And it was deadly for some of your colleagues that day. Absolutely. I mean, listen, like, there's been a lot made about, you know, Officer Brian Sicknick and what the medical examiner's office has said. But there is absolutely no way that you can say that uh, what he experienced on January 6th was not a contributing factor uh, to him suffering a series of strokes. Um, There are officers uh, who took their own lives uh, because of their experiences on January 6th. Um, And and I know that because I know um, my own personal struggles with um, what I experienced that day and what I experienced in the aftermath of of January 6th. You write in the book that that thought crossed your mind more than once. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, my motivations for speaking out were pretty simple. Uh, I wanted acknowledgement for the people that I, the officers that I fought alongside of. Uh, And when I had, you know, my motivations... Uh, mischaracterized, uh, especially by, you know, my fellow officers. I mean, that was um, incredibly, um, uh, I mean, it that broke me. Um, couple that with politicians lying about what happened that day. Uh, and then, you know, eventually me being uh, demonized, and attacked by, you know, members of the alt-right. Um, you know, all of those things take a mental toll. We're going to get to some of the attacks on you, some of the mischaracterizations in segment four. Michael Fanone is our special guest. His book, Hold the Line. He's an eyewitness. It actually happened, ladies and gentlemen. Painful as that is for all of us, we must peer into this darkness. Michael Fanona is here to help us do that. I'm Major Garrett. Our thanks to the Dubliner. Back for segment four in just a second. This is Jabari Smith, Executive Director of the NFL Players Association here at the National War College. And I want to congratulate Major Garrett and his entire team on the 300th episode of Takeout. Not only great journalism, but something that's sorely needed in our country today. Major... Congratulations. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Again, our thanks to the Dubliner. Michael Fanone is our special guest celebrating our 300th episode. It's a milestone for us. And I always tell our audience, Michael, on this topic, I wish 
I could set it aside. I wish I could say this never happened. But I can't do that because it did happen. It did happen. It's real. And Michael Fanone is a living exhibit of how difficult it is for that lived reality to be believed in certain quarters of this country. There are still people, you write about this in the book, hold the line, who want to tell themselves or have told themselves it never even happened. Or whatever happened was so much more innocent than it's been described and that there's this attempt to make it more ferocious or deadly or violent than it actually was. You've lived this part of the story. Describe what that has been like for you. Um, I'm not mischaracterizing it, am No, I? no, not at all. I mean, it's infuriating. I, I, don't, I don't know how else to, to describe it. I mean, it makes my blood boil. Um, because I see it for what it is. I mean, um, you know, you've got a Republican president who uh, I believe there's clear and convincing evidence uh, orchestrated an, an effort to defraud the American people by lying about the results of the 2020 election. And he continues to do so. Um, and that rhetoric, that effort combined with his uh, allies and their interactions with groups like the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and Three Percenters uh, resulted in the violence. All of whom who were there. Absolutely. Uh, resulted in the violence that uh, that occurred on January 6th. No Antifa. No Antifa. <laughs> and um, you heard that. No, no, I know. I've, I've heard over. Uh, trust me, I've heard it all. I've heard that I was Antifa. Um, I've heard that I'm... But your tattoos are some sort of uh, mystical uh, puzzle about right. something. I'm a left-wing, you know, hack. I mean, listen, I, I voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Um, I, I was a intense Fox News consumer. Um, I mean, you could say what you want to say, uh, but those are the things that are real. We were talking about this before we went on. Describe, and we're going to get you some more coffee, Arden. We can get some coffee for Michael. Uh, he deserves it. Uh, you are the demographic, in a way, caricature of a Trump supporter. Yeah, no, I mean. Check all those boxes for my audience. I, I, I'm more Trump than Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I drive a pickup truck. I uh, listen to country music. I hunt. I fish. Uh, I spend, you know, all of my uh, free time in the out of doors. Um, you know, humble beginnings, blue collar family. Absolutely. And like, I thought that that um, combined with, you know, my prior support of the president and the fact that what happened to me is literally. Uh, on video. I mean, you don't have to take my word for any of this. You can just watch the body-worn camera footage and the thousands of hours of CCTV footage. Um, I thought that I could help people come to the conclusion that Donald Trump is exactly what he is, which is uh, a dangerous exploiter of democracy and ultimately doesn't represent any of us he only represents his own self-interest and also expose some of the other uh, Republican leaders that only uh, represent <clears throat> their, only, their own self-interest. I'm not here talking about policy. Uh, I'm not you know, arguing 
higher or lower taxes for the middle class. I'm literally just talking about one man's efforts to subvert democracy. And you encountered the hostility to what you just said within your own police force. Officers ostracized you, began to talk about you behind your back because they still held this affinity or devotion to Trump and thought you were trying to tear him down or knock him down or criticize him or something. That's what I got from the book. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, uh, law enforcement is a microcosm of society. Um, And there were officers that I believe um, had a very different experience than me on January 6th. Many of them, um, for a variety of reasons, opted not to respond to the Capitol. Didn't even go. Correct. And I think that, um, you know, listen, there's officers that absolutely um, disagreed or were angry with me for speaking out because they just simply didn't agree with what I was saying. They felt like um, what happened on January 6th was um, justified uh, and that they were supportive of that effort. That being said, I I don't believe that's the vast majority of police officers. Uh, I think that there were a whole host of reasons why people, um, you know, turned their backs on me proverbially. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of it was, you know, a mischaracterization of my motivations for speaking out. People thought I was an attention seeker. Uh, I don't enjoy this at all. Um, And I look forward to some resolution in uh, my quest for accountability so that I can go back to enjoying a life of obscurity. And for my audience's benefit, uh, explain what your current employment status is and how it arrived at that place. Well, currently I'm employed by, uh, uh, as a contractor for CNN. I work there as a law enforcement analyst. Um, I knew that I had to leave law enforcement um, almost immediately after my congressional testimony uh, I started to um, to receive like a backlash from within the department and I, I decided that I was not going to uh, remain an officer um, despite being five years shy of receiving a full pension uh, but I did know that I was going to return to full duty uh, because I was not going to seek a medical retirement, nor was I going to give anybody the pleasure of thinking that I was um, unable to continue to do the job. Uh, and so, you know, I worked very hard. I um, came back to a limited duty status in September uh, of last year. And then by November, I was returned to a full duty status. Um, if you uh, read the article in Rolling Stone, you know exactly how I resigned. Uh, I wrote a nice message on a paper napkin, turned it into my supervisor along with my gun and my badge, uh, and called Don Lemon and told him I need a job. <laughs> so you um, resigned? I resigned. Um, yes. I returned to full duty, resigned. And December 31st was my last day uh, on the department, and I started January 1st with, um, with CNN. That is the voice of Michael Fanone, his book, Hold the Line. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For those on CBS News streaming and our podcast platforms, 
Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial, where we will have some statistics that I think you will find fascinating about our 300 episodes. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. Hey, Major, it's Corey Lewandowski. Want to say congratulations on 300 episodes of the Takeout. I've had some great free meals from you. Look to get so many more. All the best to you, my friend. Great job. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Dubliner is our host restaurant for our 300th episode, which is what we're celebrating this week. We're recording this October 26th. Michael Fanone formerly of the Metropolitan Police Department, author of Hold the Line, is our guest. Before we get back to Michael, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, what we've accomplished here in our 300 episodes. So uh, this is one of the things I'm very proud of. Uh, On the show, we've had 85 declared Republicans, 83 declared Democrats. You notice the inherent balance in those numbers? That's by design. 65 journalists, 49 members of Congress, 33 subject matter experts, 24 senators, 18 authors, also proud of this, eight professional comedians, that would not include me, eight political activists, and eight former White House officials. As you know, we do the uh, threshold questions, so let me give you the top movie answers. When we ask, all-time favorite movie, the most mentioned, Godfather 1 or Godfather 2. Next, Star Wars usually Star Wars 4, the original, the number one. And 4, and there's a tie here, Field of Dreams, Gone with the Wind, Shawshank Redemption. We'll get to the other bits of trivia about the threshold questions momentarily. Michael, I want to ask you, um, when you think about political actors you have encountered since January 6th, because you advocated on behalf of recognition, not only for you, but everyone else who held the line on that day. Summarize what that experience was like. Um, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, Major, I never had the highest uh, opinion of, of lawmakers or politicians. Um, held them in minimum low regard, as they say. Yeah. I mean, there were some people that... Uh, You know, the only person that, uh, or the only people that I really encountered throughout this process, and there's no offense to the few politicians that, that I call friends, but um, 
the only ones that struck me as true statesmen were uh, Nancy Pelosi and Liz Cheney. Um, you know, I don't agree with either one of their politics 100% of the time. Um, but those were two people that uh, I felt uh, were similarly dedicated to uh, to their oath um, as I was and, and as many of my um, you know, co-workers over the years were as well. You write in the book that Speaker Pelosi kept in touch with you. She did. Um, in unexpected ways <laughs> that were not ceremonial or part of a photo op or something. No, I mean, it, text messages and, uh, you know, 3 a.m. phone calls, um, which I think is I attributed to the, the fact that she was out on the left coast uh, <laughs> and probably forgot about the uh, the time difference. <laughs> but I answered, uh, nevertheless, um, yeah, she was a very sweet woman. Um, and I, you know, was very, very good to me and, and to my family. Um as was, uh, you know, Miss Cheney and um, and several other. Uh, you write in the book about Eric Swalwell and Adam Kinzinger. Yeah, I I mean, um, I, I would say I'm closest with uh, with those two. Um, I mean, uh, we just get along, despite uh, how you know they earn their living, which I disagree with um, tremendously. But most of the uh, lawmakers that I met with fell into, like, the Kevin McCarthy category, which um, to me was just, you know, absolute and utter indifference. Um, You know, indifference to me, indifference to uh, what other officers experienced on January 6th. You know, we were a political inconvenience um, because he knew that – you know, that event was uh, instigated by the leader of his party, and he knew that drawing attention to it was not politically advantageous. Um, but that's to say, you know, I was also met with some pretty extreme indifference on behalf of Democratic lawmakers, city officials that I pursued, like uh, Mayor Bowser and, and the city council. Um, you know, they couldn't care less about what the officers experienced that day and, and what they went through because it wasn't politically advantageous for them um, being, you know, D.C. officials and, and their thoughts that uh, that would not generate votes um, by supporting the police. Uh, and, and so overall, um, I go back to that word, uh, indifference. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we should demand a lot more from those that represent us, at least I do. So I mentioned the uh, three threshold questions. I'm going to give them to you. You can take them in whatever order you prefer. I think I know at least one of the answers, having read the book. Uh, If you're on a long flight or a long drive, in your case probably a long drive, out to go fishing or hunting, what kind of music are you going to be listening to because you'd really dig it? Uh, All-time favorite movie and uh, the most influential book in your life. All right, well, music is easy um it's either gonna be well right now i've got a um sturgill simpson charlie crockett whiskey myers brent cobb and uh tyler childers are are in uh steady rotation 
So there's a country music theme there. Um, movie, piece of cake, good, the bad, and the ugly. That was one of the first westerns I ever saw, and uh, I've probably watched that movie start to finish 300 times in my life. Um, book, hmm, it might surprise you. Not, I've not read many books in my uh, in my life. Um, being that I barely graduated from high school. But, um, yeah, I'll tell you what, <clears throat> this isn't like a shameless plug, but um, reading my own book for the audio book mm-hmm. was a pretty emotional experience. Um, first of all, it was hard. I remember thinking that, uh, you know, oh, pay me a couple thousand dollars to read my own book. Piece of cake. No. That it was not. But uh, going back over my own words and my own uh, interpretation of my experiences, um, it made me proud. And uh, to know that, you know, that was a uh, legacy that I'm going to leave to my children, um, you know, made me incredibly proud. uh, Because I think it's important for them and, and for all of us to recognize that, um, you know, this kind of fairy tale that violence is never the answer, uh, I think is, um, is ridiculous. I think that, uh, we need to start teaching our children that some things are worth fighting for. Um, and I, I certainly thought that, um, my colleagues were worth fighting for on January 6th. Uh, and that democracy is worth fighting for, which is why I'm not going to stop talking until there's uh, accountability for January 6th. That is the voice of Michael Fanone. The book is Hold the Line, again, published by Simon & Schuster, a part of Paramount Global. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for hanging out with us at your takeout outtake especial. We shall see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.